Well, I, uh, I don't know if you ha- picked up on any little tidbits of news this week, but it appears that um, by some type of declaration of the President of the United States, we are now a pride nation. I don't know if you're aware of that. Pride flag is proudly displayed at the White House, and we are, we are a pride nation. And while that might be a little bit unnerving to many of you, it certainly should not weigh on you as heavily as the news about Cracker Barrel did. I don't know if you know, but Cracker Barrel posted something on Instagram that was pride-related. Cracker Barrel. Did you hear me? <laughs> that, that hit home deeply for me. I am a Cracker Barrel pancakes man for sure. I don't mean to make light of what is you know, a very serious matter and uh, profound issues that we're grappling with in our society, but I I do think that our study, in particular 1 Corinthians broadly, but even 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that we've been looking at, much of what we are seeing and experiencing in our culture today, I think, is directly correspondent to the breakdown of what we are studying in relationship of men and women and their roles and responsibilities in the home, in the family, in the church, and in society. That you are basically, and I, we are witnessing the outworkings over decades of of disobedience to God's design And that necessarily leads to disorder, chaos, and ultimately to destruction. And that's what we're seeing. But I was reminded also this week, um, as I was putting together the little Building Faith Bulletin that we sent out yesterday and thinking about this, I don't know, do you guys, anybody see that? We we did a little ceremony at the property a couple weeks ago. The elders gathered and we buried a time capsule under the place where the pulpit is likely to be sort of sit, generally speaking, prior to them uh, pouring the sanctuary foundation. And inside that time capsule is a a copy of our doctrinal statement, uh, a copy of our philosophy of ministry, a copy of our incorporation letter that just kind of has the date of the church's founding, if you will, and then certainly, and most importantly, a copy of God's Word with some relevant passages highlighted in it. And we gathered, and we had a time of prayer, and Shane uh, did a little bit of a commentary on, on what we were doing and why we were doing it, and he referenced a passage from Matthew, a familiar passage, that speaks of the need for us to build our lives on, on the Word of Christ, and in so doing, we are building our lives on a rock. But then he goes on to describe in that whole metaphor that everything else is sand. Shifting sand, if you want to go back to the sort of the children's song, Sinking Sand, or the the hymn, I should say, the hymn of of, of Sinking Sand, uh, um, My Hope is Built on Nothing Less Than Jesus' Blood and Righteousness. All other ground is sinking sand. And so we come today as believers to continue to build our lives on the rock. And we don't have to worry about shifting sand as we do that, right? So for us, as we continue in this study and we continue in this 
process of working out our salvation with fear and trembling and fellowship in the body of Christ and in personal study and in seeking to uh, mortify the flesh and have the mind of Christ. Insofar as we're doing that, we are, we are building our lives on the solid rock of Christ. And we have nothing to fear. There's no need for undue anxiety or consternation over pride flags being hung or rocking chairs at Cracker Barrel being painted as a rainbow, even that. So I take great hope in that. I want to encourage you in that. And yet I also think we need to continue to uh, be sober-minded as we think about these, these important uh, texts as we look again at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Let me just invite you to turn there, if you haven't already. We'll be starting in verse 2 and reading through verse 16. He says, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Now, as we have said before, and as we are reminded of once again as we read through this text... It is not the most straightforward in terms of how it lands on us, particularly when you get to this matter of head coverings and hair length and shaved heads and cut hair short and all these types of references. Uh, It certainly is not the most straightforward text for us to sort of grapple with and determine, well, what does this mean for me? I mean, there's a lot of ladies in here without your head covered. Are you walking in disobedience, for example? And my sense is that most of the women in here, if not all of you women in here, would want to know what Scripture teaches you, and you would be faithful to it. So it matters that we try to untangle some of this and try to understand it, even if it is difficult. And as I said before, uh, this is a universally understood difficult passage. And yet, as we talked about previously, as we began to open up this study, and we noted even there in verse 3... The Apostle Paul says there is something very important that I want you to understand. So we have laid before us a lot of verses that upon initial reading, it's like, I don't understand. But the Apostle Paul begins with this crucial principle in verse 3 saying, I want you to understand this. This is significant for you to understand. And we talked about how this clearly lays out, and even as you look at what are some of the more difficult elements of this, 
it certainly is clear that it lays out the significance of distinctions between men and women, and in particular, as we've already talked about, within the context of the assembled body of believers for worship. Chapter 11, really all the way through verse 14, is dealing primarily with matters of practice and and faithfulness, or even rebukes of unfaithfulness in the context of corporate worship. And we've sort of covered that as a way of survey. We'll certainly unpack that as we get to these passages moving forward. But nevertheless, we see here at the very beginning that he is introducing to us this matter of headship. And in particular, as it comes to us, as it points at us, it is this principle of headship under Christ, headship under man, headship under God. And we said before, too, that this entire section, and really 11 through 14 as, as, a, as a collection of chapters, is, is focusing upon worship and God's people gathered for worship for the express purpose of glorifying God, of bringing glory to God. Or you might say it another way that we've said it before, uh, as we gather that our worship and our conduct and our thinking and our actions and our words, it should in many ways reflect truly and clearly and accurately the character or attributes of God. That we'd never want our, our practices, our conduct, our attitudes, as we gather in the context of worship, to reflect inaccurately or to fail to reflect the character of God, who God is, what He is like. You see this in particular as you, as you move into the section in chapters 12 through 14, dealing with the the function of gifts in the body of Christ. And there is an element there where you see the Apostle Paul dealing with practices that are pointing sort of the attention, the focus, and the focus to the gathered believers rather than to the gospel and the glory of God. In other words, elevating individuals and and who, who are particularly gifted or have particularly expressive types of gifts And there's a rebuke there because he's saying people might come into your assembly and not even know what's going on with you. And God is not a God of confusion. He he wants things to function neatly and in order, he says. So, So our gathering, even as we think about this particular text in chapter 11 and thinking about the roles of men and women in the context of worship, and even more broadly because he does broaden it, It has to do with us being men and women who are oriented around the glory of God and in our gathered assembly around the accurate reflection of His character and His nature. So that one another, as we're around one another, we are are able to observe and see the work and presence and character of God in one another. But even more significantly, if others come into our midst and our assembly who don't know God, they will have a a visible representation of what God is like, of who He is, by virtue of the character and action and words and practices of God's assembled people. That can't be missed as we, as we study this, and we'll kind of, I think, see that as we continue to move through it. As we said before, uh, this is a, definitely a principle, even though we're called to understand the principle. Uh, it's a principle that's easy to misunderstand, and we talked quite a bit about that last week. You even have uh, this reference to it there at the very beginning because the Apostle Paul commends them in verse 2 for remembering him and everything and maintaining the traditions as he delivered them to them. But then he goes to this but 
word to say, but something's amiss. You're doing okay, you're doing good in some of these traditions, but there's things that you're missing. There's things that you've misunderstood. So even by virtue of what the Apostle Paul writes here, we see that even though it's important for us to understand it, it's important for the Corinthians to understand it, it's not easy to understand or it's easy to to miss some things, and even the Corinthians are missing some things here. And so we have to acknowledge that we have to do some work here to make sure that our, our understanding of this passage is deeply rooted in what is true. We even talked about the traditions that he mentions and how that could kind of turn people a little bit sideways. And in fact, for some who would hold to maybe what you might consider an egalitarian view, we talked about that a little bit last week and we'll talk about it more as we go forward, but a view that would basically hold men and women up as not just equal in essence and in, in the presence of God and, in, and created in the image of God, but equal in their function, equal in the, in the way that they're to function in society, in the church, in the home, in the family, sort of the general you know, rough summary of the egalitarian position. There, there are those that would refer to what we would hold to, which was the, is the complementarian position, which we'll talk about in a minute a little bit more, uh, that would call that traditional the traditional position, which tradition being bad, tradition being archaic, tradition being not appropriate for this time. And you have the Apostle Paul referencing this term tradition, and in fact, we talked about this last week, in, in certain contexts, and even particularly in the Gospels, the traditions of the Pharisees, or the traditions of men as they are held to, and more erroneously held forth as equivalent with the precepts of God, That's when tradition is bad. But insofar as a tradition or a practice, a truth principle that's being handed down, particularly being handed down by the apostles, that is not something that is to be ignored. It is something to be held to, as he says. Remembering me, he means calling to mind and putting into practice. I'm commending you for for holding to these things. So we're called to understand what's in view here, that there are things that we might misunderstand that we need to have clarity on. There are things that have to do with what has been passed down to us that we are to hold fast to, these traditions that he's referring to. But we also need to recognize, and we talked about this before, is that we have to be mindful of the fact that, that in some ways this kind of is a, is a bit of a provocation of our modern sensibilities. We can't allow ourselves to, to uh, sort of write into the meaning of the text what we've drawn from our sort of inhaling the oxygen of our time and reimagining what Scripture is teaching here. And this is what you find happening Broadly speaking, on, particularly on hot-button cultural issues, uh, people are reimagining the meaning of Scripture. They're starting with a presupposition that is rooted in a godless, human-based ideology. They're elevating that human-based ideology to an authoritative position, and then they're overlaying that ideology on top of Scripture and forcing Scripture to comport with that godless ideology in some way or another. So you have all of these hermeneutical gymnastics, these biblical interpretive gymnastics that are going on with the text, and that's what happens here commonly. 
talked a little bit about that last time. We'll talk about it even more today. As I said, this passage raises many, many questions, uh, difficult questions, hard, hard to understand questions. Um, I wanted to kind of mention a few of them to you. The, the part about traditions is one. What, I thought traditions were bad. What do we do about that? The next one that we talked about briefly is, what about this term head? Uh, Paul uses this repeatedly in the passage. Is it primarily a metaphorical reference or an anatomical reference or both? How are we to understand the term head or correspondingly the idea or the concept of headship that seems to be uh, pointed to here? And are we talking about something that is a universal concept or is it just for husbands and wives? I mean, how are we to understand clearly what is a pointer to some concept of head or headship? So that's where I want us to focus most of our time today on this question of, of headship or what he's referring to in the use of this particular term. Now, I mentioned last time there's kind of two contending positions, uh, and I referenced them just a moment ago, the egalitarian position and the complementarian position. So just to set in your mind the egalitarian position, because we're going to raise it up again in just a moment, uh, this, is, this is a position that, or, or a view particularly a view uh, or an understanding of manhood and womanhood as it rises up out of Scripture, that, there are, that set, would say that there, there's an equality of personhood, but there are also no gender-based limitations on what functions or roles each can fulfill in the home, church, and society, what man, men and women can fill in the home or church or society. They often refer to themselves as advocates of biblical equality. So they adopt what is a very um, positive-oriented term of equality, and they import it into the text of Scripture. But as I briefly mentioned last week, Scripture does not highlight equality as a guarantee, as a right, as a way that we should think as believers. How is it that the very foundation of the Christian faith is based upon a grossly, consummately unjust act of executing an innocent man. That doesn't seem like equal treatment under the law, right? And you can just work your way out from that. This concept of equality that is sort of in the blood of, you know, American citizenship and all that kind of stuff, That is not a principle that is held forth in the way that it's understood now as something to be valued. Justice, yes, as it's defined by God. But not some notion of perfect equality. That's a pipe dream. That will never happen this side of the coming of Christ to restore all things. So to have this idea of bringing equality into the mix as the standard that we have to make these scriptures comport with on its face is a mistake hermeneutically from the standpoint of biblical interpretation. But that's what happens. In fact, I mentioned this last time, but the interpretive lens that is often used for an egalitarian position is Galatians 3.28 which says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. 
And so it's just a way of flattening out the understanding of male and female roles, taking that gospel-centered text and, and flattening out its application to male and female roles in the life of the church, saying that we're all, we're all one, we're all equal. See, there it is. So I've got to take Galatians 3.28, and I've got to use it as the interpretive lens for 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So we want to make sure that we understand what Paul is talking about here. How are we to understand, at the jump, this reference to headship? Paul uses this term over and over again. And what I would say, here's, here's the... Here's sort of the, the sub-principle, the sub-point that I would, I would highlight here under this idea of trying to understand, needing to understand what he's talking about when he's talking about this, this hierarchy of headship. That headship and submission, I'm adding submission, I have AND in all caps, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Headship and submission are innate, defining characteristics of God's created design that are intended to ensure human flourishing and reflect his holy nature in the world and especially in the church. That's what we need to understand here. That headship and submission are innate, defining characteristics of God's creative design that are intended to ensure human flourishing and reflect his holy nature in the world and especially in the church. Put it simply, the Pillar New Testament commentary just says this, to Paul's mind, everyone except God has a head. And it is important to understand who your head is. Now Paul uses this term head, as I said, I think a total of nine times in this particular passage. It's the term kephale, and it refers to the part of the body that contains the brain, right? Some, some of the contents are more than others. I understand that. But it's part of the body that contains the brain. Or it could refer to a being of high status or rank. So you have these two kind of concepts under the term. One is an anatomical reference to our physical head. Could be used metaphorically for sure, but in a literal definition. The other has to do with rank or implicit authority. And as I said, he uses it nine times in this passage, and he does use it metaphorically and literally and anatomically. But here's the interesting, I don't know, the interesting irony of his usage here. When he uses this term metaphorically, this term for head metaphorically, it has eternally transcendent meaning. In other words, His metaphorical use of the term head has transcendent for all time implication and application. On the other hand, when he uses it anatomically, physiologically, it seems to have more of a culturally symbolic meaning. That's why it's ironic to me. Like the metaphorical use is the most substantive meaning. The literal use referring to actual heads that something's going on or something shouldn't go on, is largely a cultural symbol in its meaning. That's that's the way I'm understanding this text. Verse 3, 
But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of the wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. That's a metaphorical use of the term head. And it's obvious, I mean, from the reading. We're not talking about an anatomical head here. Same as in verse 4, every man, dot, 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 skip ahead, dishonors his head. In verse 4, as in verse 5, you have both a literal anatomical use, referring to something going on, a physical head, and then you have a metaphorical use of dishonoring one's head, because that bounces back to the metaphorical use in verse 3. Every wife in verse 5, dot, 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 dishonors her head. That's a metaphorical reference to the head he's talking about in verse 3. This is a reference to man who is the head of every wife or every woman. We'll talk about that in a moment. Every man who dishonors his head in verse 4, that's a reference to the head of, to Christ who is the head of every man, referencing back to verse 3. These are the metaphorical uses of the term head, which is referring to authority, rank. And then anatomically, these culturally symbolic meanings, verse 4, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered. That's his head. That's this thing. Every wife who prays or prophesies, verse 5, with her head covered. That's a literal head reference. Verse 7, for a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. That's a literal reference to his physical head. Verse 10, that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. That's literal, physical, anatomical head because of the angels. Now, I just want to note that if you're looking in your English translation, some of the English translations will insert the term head in a place where it's not actually existent in the Greek language. And they do that for just readability. And let me just give you some examples of why that is or what that would look like. Uh, For example, in in the second part of verse 5, it says, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. That's what it says in the ESV. In verse 5, I guess I'll read the whole thing to you. Uh, It says, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. In that particular verse, it says, since it is the same as if her head were shaven, but it literally is It is the same as shaven. So there's no Greek word kephale there. The same is true in verse 6. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. Literally that says, for if a wife will not cover, then cut. But since disgraceful, wife to cut or shave, cover. That's like a literal Greek transliteration of the text, okay? So the, for readability in the English, the, the, the word head is inferred. So when I say that there are nine uses, and in yours you're going, well, there's way more than nine. No, it's, there's not. That's just, that's just the translation distinction there. Now, what we're seeing here in this sort of interplay of these uses of this Greek word for head, kephale, is Paul's instruction to the Corinthians about the importance of preserving outward symbols of headship and submission that reflect God's design rather than the customs and traditions of a fallen and corrupted world. I mean, he's obviously concerned about the people gathered for worship that they are not 
practicing in a way, they're not worshiping in a way, they're not adopting customs that reflect something other than God's design. So clearly there's something about this head covering for women, no head covering for men, in its first century Corinthian context that would equate with them not reflecting God's design. And so he's calling them back to a practice that would reflect God's creative design for distinction of roles and responsibilities and identity of men and women in the church. And it's a warning or a caution, by inference at least, against God's people adopting outward symbols, external practices that say something more about our worldly connection than it does about our identity in Christ, particularly in the context of worship. So there is this connection here to the importance of what we are reflecting outwardly. It it does not conflict with or send a completely discordant message than what is true about who we are. That's kind of the idea. Now, we're going to unpack that a lot next week, okay? This is, this is just sort of a little bit of introduction, because I want to come back to this other, other part about headship and submission. We're going to dig into this whole matter of head coverings next week. We're going to try to unpack what are some of the possible cultural uh, scenarios that the Apostle Paul could be dealing with. There's a lot of literature, and a lot of ink's been spilled on this particular thing, and a lot of it is trying... It's, it's uh, theologians and commentators and historians trying to piece together what must have been going on or what could have been going on in first century Corinth that would make this make sense. So it's, there's a lot of material, in other words, and, and it's, it's kind of like it, it lands on a few different sort of perspectives on this. But what I have concluded and, and determined just as I started to look at all this is that we're really talking about symbols that reflect a reality in the literal anatomical use of head here. This whole matter of head coverings and having something on your head versus not having something on your head, and on and on it goes. Again, we'll come back to that next week, but I want us to focus the rest of our time today a bit more on this transcendent use of head. The metaphorical use that has eternal transcendent meaning because it has profound implications for us without any specific reference to first century Corinth. So let's start there. Now, going back to my initial statement about what it is that we're specifically to understand, my initial statement had to do with us understanding that headship and submission are innate defining characteristics of God's creative design that are intended to ensure human flourishing and reflect His holy nature in the world and especially in the church. Now, I am raising up the specter, not just of head or headship, but headship and submission. You do not find submit or submission in this passage. So let me tell you why I'm saying that is a crucial part of our understanding this. Many who hold to an egalitarian view, as I said, this idea of thoroughgoing, sort of equal, not just equal 
personhood and equal status before God and equal image bearers of God, but just complete flatlined equality in role and function. That's kind of an egalitarian view. Those that would hold to that view would look at this term for head, particularly in, in chapter 11, verse 3, kephale, and they would say it should be translated as source or origin rather than ascribing any kind of meaning that, has, that carries a connotation of authority. So they would say that this is talking about source, you know, that, 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 man, that the woman was created from man, so in a sense man is the head, the source of a woman. And they would even go so far as to say that in the, in the reference to uh, Christ, who God is his head, that that refers to the, the incarnation, that, that God was the source of the incarnation in a sense. We're going to talk about that too because you get into some really difficult Trinitarian uh, uh, pickles with that. There's a whole uh, debate in Trinitarian theology around the eternal sonship uh, discussion. Was Christ, as, as, a third, as, a, as a second person of the Trinity, was he always submissive to the Father? You get into these debates about you know, equal in essence, but how does this work out? And again, I, just because I I'm, I'm a glutton for punishment. I'm going to step into that a little bit because I think we need to understand it a little bit more. But um, it's also not easy to untangle. Any of you? Can any of you just tell me exactly what the Trinity is, real quick? Like, just real succinct, just say this is the Trinity. Uh, we're going to try to unpack that because it is. It, it does lead to heresy if you're not landing in an orthodox position, even as it references uh, elements of that in this particular passage. So we'll go there as well. But for now. This idea in an egalitarian view of, of kephale, of head, referring to source, and not having any kind of definition that would ascribe to it some kind of authority, of course, that's necessary if you have an egalitarian view, right? I mean, you've got you to gotta flatten that out. You've got to do something with this passage so that I'm not, you know, an egalitarian who's saying, you know, I'm... I'm I guess, I, I guess I've, on this particular case, I've got to just give up my whole point of view. No, it's a, it's a way to sort of support the position by laying over it a particular meaning. Now, I'm not going to get into this detail, but there's a whole debate over this about where that, that source or origin kind of definition came from, and literally... The primary source came from an egalitarian theologian who pulled from some works of Chrysostom and basically quoted him out of context. So then Wayne Grudem comes along a little bit later and just eviscerates the whole thing and quotes larger swaths of Chrysostom, using Chrysostom's own writings to refute the quote that this other theologian pulled from Chrysostom to defend this kind of definition. So again, a little bit in the weeds there, but the point is, is that that is a terrible inter, uh, 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 translation for kephale. I want you to think about this practically before we kind of unpack, unpack it a little bit more from a, a linguistic standpoint. The concept of headship, apart from the concept of authority and submission, is a meaningless term. We understand that, right? Why bother? It doesn't mean anything. In fact, the concept of headship, apart from a concept of authority and submission, is, in fact, the very recipe for disorder, suffering, and ultimate destruction. 
that should be obvious to all of us who live in some semblance of a functioning civil society. You can't have a concept of headship that is detached from a concept of submission. In fact, as we think about this from the standpoint of our own sanctification, as we study these kinds of passages, the problem is not and never has been and never will be with God's design, but rather the problem is with our persistent unwillingness to submit ourselves to it. That's always been the problem. It will forevermore be the problem until Jesus comes back. We want to make, in our sort of more secular leanings, we want to make this archaic view of men and women and how it's kind of laid out. We want to make that the problem. Failing to see that in, in, just, in just, a, just kind of sort of confining it to that kind of box, that kind of irrelevant first century context kind of box, that we are fundamentally rebelling against God's design and thereby per- perpetuating the disorder and the bondage that we're claiming to liberate ourselves from. This is what's happened in our society. The very, the very progress, quote-unquote, and push toward liberality and freedom and being unshackled from the chains of the patriarchy and all these kinds of ideas, at root, is the very cause of the bondage that people experience. Bondage to themselves, to their sin, to their ideas about what really produces happiness and real freedom and real flourishing. And I can promise you this, people who are pushing, like aggressively pushing for conceptions that are in defiance of God's design, they are some of the most miserable people you would ever engage with, fundamentally. Like, they're not people who are characterized by the peace that passes all understanding. They're not people who are generally characterized by a sense of selfless sacrifice so that you can gain Christ, dying so that you can live. They're not characterized by that. And so they're ultimately miserable. And the problem that we have is not a problem of not understanding what God is saying or not wanting to kind of overrule in such a way that it's not really fair to women or all these different things that might come to mind. The problem is is that men and women are failing to submit to God's design. And I've said this before. This is not just a problem with women not submitting to men. It's a problem of men not submitting to the headship of Christ and being faithful men of God. It cuts both ways. Our problem is submission. The problem is not headship as God designed it. I said this a few weeks ago, some of the best commentary that I've read on this, on on a a complementarian position, supporting that. This is written by women. One example, Claire Smith. She's the author of God's Good Design, What the Bible Really Says About Men and Women. In this article, she's responding to the argument 
that the New Testament use of the Greek word translated head merely refers to what I said before, just source or origin. Here's what she says. She says, if that's the case, their argument goes, then there is no order of relationships between men and women in any context. And any New Testament passage that gives men and women different roles simply reflects first century culture and is not relevant today. However, I believe that's wrong and that it is unavoidable that the word head has the notion of authority over, and especially so in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 3. I have two reasons for thinking so. Firstly, an extensive study of this word head in ancient Greek literature shows that when it is used as a metaphor for human relationships, it is associated with the concept of authority, not with source or origins. In fact, recent studies cast doubt on whether it ever had the meaning source. This is what I was talking about, the whole Chrysostom issue. Secondly, when Paul uses the word elsewhere in relation to Christ, it always has the sense of authority over. Ephesians 5, Ephesians 1, Ephesians 4, Colossians 1, Colossians 2. More recently, the suggestion has been made that the Greek word in question means preeminence rather than authority in the sense that one's head is prominent. Again, just try to do hermeneutical gymnastics, definitional tricks to make it fit with an ideology. But once again, there is no indication in the ancient literature that readers in the first century would have recognized such a meaning. In sum, Paul is using the word head to talk about order and authority in relationships, end quote. The problem, as I said, is a problem with us simply bowing the knee to what God has said and what God has designed. Comprehensively, across the board. Men, women, both and. The problem is our rebellion. And so what ends up happening is we will confuse it. Society will confuse it. The culture confuses the issues. They confuse it with trivial ideas and and trivial models of authority and submission, of headship and submission. But that's not even the worst of it. The worst of it is that we have done a terrible job in actually modeling God's design so that you have multiple generations of people growing up with absolutely no concept of how this should look. None whatsoever. And some people get a hold of this and begin to try to work it out, and they work it out in ways that are just askew from reality or from what the actual text is calling them to. So you have some who would try to use absurd characterizations of things to argue against a headship and submission kind of relationship between men and women. And you have others who are just basically, in some ways, victims of the society writ large that they don't even understand it and they don't know how to work it out and all they've seen are really, really bad models and they don't want any part of that. If that's what it means, I'm not interested. Listen to what John MacArthur says, though, about this to kind of right-size our perspective on some of this. He says, Paul makes no distinction between men and women as far as personal worth, abilities, intellect, or spirituality are concerned. Both as human beings and as Christians, women in general are completely equal to men spiritually. Some women, obviously, 
are even superior to some men in abilities, intellect, maturity, and spirituality. I would just say some women, though. I wouldn't say a lot of women. I'm only kidding. That was just intended to make sure you're awake. God established the principle of male authority and female subordination for the purpose of order and complementation, not on the basis of any innate superiority of males. The women are going, that's got to be true. No kidding there. An employee may be more intelligent and more skilled than his boss, but a company cannot be run without submission to proper authority, even if some of those in authority are not as capable as they ought to be. Have any of you ever had a boss that you're like going, I don't know how this joker got to where he or she got, right? We experience this in real time. This is common to man. So it surprises me that we can't sort of sort this out, just generally speaking. We understand that, yeah, that person definitely is not there because they've taken some test and they've tested smarter than me. There's no way that that's the case. So my job, if I want to keep my job, is to submit to their imbecilic management. Right? I mean, that's life in the fallen world. But we understand this authority and submission kind of principle just on a basic level. MacArthur goes on. He even says elders and deacons are to be the chosen from among the most spiritual men of the congregation. But there may be other men in the church who are even more spiritual. Yet for the very reason that they are spiritual, those who are not in positions of leadership will submit to those who are. A church may have some women who are better Bible students, better theologians, and better speakers than any of the men, including the pastor. But if those women are obedient to God's order, they will submit to male leadership and will not try to usurp it simply because that is God's design. A wife may be better educated, better taught in Scripture, and more spiritually mature than her husband, but because she is spiritual, she will willingly submit to him as head of the family. That proper relationship is specifically described in Ephesians 5. Now, I want to read to you from Ephesians 5 for just a moment. Starting in verse 15, broadly speaking to the church, look carefully then how you walk, Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So in the context of the church, the body of Christ, we are to be characterized by these kinds of things, namely, here at the end, characterized by submission to one another, out of reference for Christ. And that, is, that applies to men and women. It applies to believers who are husbands and wives in the assembly. There is mutual submission. But then he goes on to more narrowly define this in its outworking in the context of a marriage and a home. Look at verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, here's what will happen in this particular verse. 
The egalitarian view will say it does not have submit in the Greek text there. And it doesn't. So here's how it would read. Verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. So they want to say that because submit is not literally in the Greek text, then it's not really calling women to submit to their husbands. But it's totally implicit in the reading of the text. Why? Verse 23, for the husband, same kind of language as we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So this submission, headship submission dynamic, goes from mutual submission in in the body of Christ which encapsulates husbands and wives, to a more narrow application or working out of this with the understanding of the roles and responsibilities of husbands and wives in the context of marriage. There is no place here for some kind of 50-50 split. This is God's design, and notice the call of submission is a call to submit as unto the Lord. Not as unto a husband who is always worthy to be submitted to. Because this is God's design. And insofar as we are working out this design, we are... We are... Per, we are, we are um, spreading an example of faithfulness and reflecting that design to our homes, our families, our churches, and our communities. In other words, if we get zeroed in on temporal, unbiblical notions of rights and equality, then we will miserably undermine the work of the gospel and the character of God being reflected in the worship of his people over and over and over again. We will completely undermine that. And so what he's calling us to is to understand that this design is intended for the glory of God. Because in God being glorified and drawn to him as the saving God, the good God, the wise God, the loving God, the forgiving God, the sovereign God... That is the very source of the fullest of human flourishing in every context and in every relationship. And we, in our pettiness, want to undermine the grand, all-wise, transcendent, eternal purposes of the God who made us, male and female. We're totally missing it. Now, briefly, we come back to this question in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So what is he talking about? Ephesians 5, pretty clear. But 1 Corinthians chapter 11, is this husbands and wives? Is this men and women generally? How do we understand the application points of this? I mean, not everybody is married. So do the single ladies in the congregation, in the church... Are they compelled to some sort of similar concept of submission as we see in Ephesians chapter 5? 
Is this about husbands and wives? Is it about men and women generally? I think it's both and. I think that textually it's both and in the sense that the assumption in the early part of the text, it has an assumption of husband and wife in view, similar to Ephesians chapter 5. But you'll notice he also broadens our understanding of this because he does refer to the created order of things. He does refer to man and how he was made and woman and how she was made and how she was made for a purpose. Uh, woman, uh, verse 8, uh, made from man and for man. So there is this reference back to the, the Genesis account of creation that is, that is the, the created order for men and women writ large, not just for marriage. Now, some ideas, again, we don't get this explicitly from this particular passage, but some ideas about how to think about that. It begins, of course, with a sense of mutual submission, but I would say that for single ladies in the life of the church, your created design is to find yourself in meaningful submission to spiritual men in your life. Count for counsel, for protection, for you to be a helper to their spiritual flourishing in ways that are appropriate. That there has to be an, a level of submission. So oftentimes this works out in the context of, of a submissive daughter to a father, a godly father. I, I can... My daughter's not in here. It would be better if she was because she could, I mean, she could either verify or she could deny. But my daughter is 25. She's unmarried. She has a job. She lives with some other girls in the church on her own, pays her own car insurance, pays her own, pays her own I mean, pays for her own stuff, you know. I mean, I, I feel like we buy a lot of meals for her when we go out, but that's a different thing. Um, <laughs> But she is, you know, she's a, a young woman. But I can tell you, there's an ongoing submissiveness to me that is distinct. And it's not because I'm, like, making her or whatever. There's just, there's just a sense of safety and, and guidance and help and support. And there's a sense of submission that I, I sense from her that is affirming to me as a father as well. So that's just one example of, of this, the way that this kind of works out. And just note that, that 1 Corinthians is a letter to a church. So in order for this to actually make the fullest sense, you have to understand it and apply it within the context of a faithful body of believers. So in the context of the church, if it's governed according to what Scripture teaches, it's governed by a plurality of elders who are men. So that provides one sort of formal avenue for women in the church who are unmarried to sort of work this out in a biblical kind of way without thinking of it in terms of an Ephesians 5 husband and wife kind of, of um, I don't know, error. That would be erroneous. So I think that in the context of the church, that there is to be, the reason why I say that is that what you want in the context of the church are men and women who understand how God made them and are seeking to work that out to his glory. 
knowing that he is sovereign in the current place that he's had them. We, see, we saw that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 when we studied that whole passage. That God's placed you in a particular status, if you will, married or single, widowed or otherwise, for his purpose, and you want to be working that out to his glory. And so in the context of the local church, certainly it's very clear this headship and submission is very clearly and explicitly described in Ephesians chapter 5. Even in the, in the sense of an unbelieving spouse in 1 Peter chapter 3, you see a, a, a description of that there. It's not quite as clear in the practical, prescriptive sense for single ladies or widow ladies and that kind of thing. But I would just give that general understanding that, that, that singleness does not diminish God's creative design. It does not sort of set God's creative order aside. So it's incumbent upon us as men and women to seek to understand how we work out this created design of headship and submission in a way that's honoring to the Lord. Recognizing that ultimately in the context of the fellowship of the body of Christ, there is always mutual submission going on. There's always preferring one another, considering others as more important than yourselves, bearing one another's burdens. I mean, that's the character of God's people in the body of Christ. So I think that the application has to be worked out. It can't be, it can't be carved out for just husbands and wives with no implications for men and women who don't happen to be married but who were created as they were created in the image of God in the way that he designed men and women. It still has to apply in some way, but there is a problem. And by the way, I do know that there are models of church leadership that would take this to some really strange extreme where there's sort of these, you know, these male, these men overlording over single women in the church, and there's all kinds of horror stories around that. So that's not what we're talking about either. There is sort of some balance working out of this, and I would just... I would just call upon all of us to be diligent in working this out faithfully. Not, not setting things aside, but understanding that, that this is part of how God designed men and women so that we would be characterized by image, as, as image bearers who worship and work out our salvation in the context of the body of Christ decently and in order and reflecting the very character of God clearly. So in other words, it's not about us, it's about him. It's not about our rights, it's not about us you know, getting our, our due. It's about us constantly being mindful. What is God calling me to, to live my life in this current state in such a way that I accurately and clearly reflect his character and his design? Because that's way more important to a watching world and to my brothers and sisters in Christ than me having some temporary and ultimately destructive notion of equality. So God, help us all submit to one another as appropriate, but ultimately submit to what God has designed for us as his people. All right, we got more to do. It's time to go. You have two minutes to, uh, I guess, fellowship, and then we'll be making the transition. Let me pray for us.